You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. We're recording during Australian Open Week, and to that end, I'm very pleased to say that we're joined by Andrew Thompson, son of five times Open champion Peter Thompson. During the course of our chat, we'd explore Andrew's recent trip to the UK, share some stories about his father and his career in golf as a player, writer, broadcaster, mentor, and designer. For listeners that may not be aware of Peter Thompson's achievements, a quick glance at his main competitive focus, the Open Championship, is well worth recounting. He made his debut in 1951 at Royal Port Rush. Incidentally, this was the first time he was ever in the UK. Peter ended up finishing sixth behind Max Faulkner. In 1952, Peter was runner-up to his great friend Bobby Locke at Royal Lytham and St Anne's. Fifty-three, the Open was held at Carnoustie, and Peter Townsett tied second behind Ben Hogan. In winning the next three Opens at Royal Birkdale in 54, St Andrews in 55, and Royal Liverpool in 56, Peter emulated young Tom Morris, Jamie Anderson, and Bob Ferguson as the only golfers to win the Claret Chug three years in succession. Peter finished second to Locke again in 57, before winning his fourth Open at Royal Lytham and St Anne's in 58. It's useful to put the aforementioned period into perspective. By the time Peter Thompson was 28 years of age, he had finished either first or second in the British Open for seven years running. His final Open win was at Royal Birkdale in 1965. In addition to the Open wins, Peter Thompson won 93 other professional events, including the National Opens of nine countries. Peter Thompson was and is a significant figure in our great game of golf, and we're very grateful to Andrew for joining us today to share some stories and memories of the great man. We hope you enjoy the chat. Hi, Andrew. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. Thanks. No, I'm very pleased to participate. Excellent. Well, look, I understand that you're back home in Melbourne for a few months, no doubt, enjoying the beginning of the Australian golf summer and all that it has to offer. Yeah, I came back from Japan in August, uh, sort of as typhoon season was well underway. It's a pretty unpleasant part of the world to be in. And uh, these few months at the end of 2022 are significant for we Australian golfers because the Australian Open Golf Championship uh, is returning to Victoria, to Melbourne. Uh, So we regard that as a very significant event. It's been... uh, too, it's been lonely, let me put it that way, in Sydney for, for too long. It's been 15 years or so, I believe, since it, uh, it, it, it darkened Melbourne's door. Yeah, well, I, I'd better not resort to the adjectives I think uh, should apply to that. Uh, this is a federation, after all. Uh, (laughs) ever the politician listen maybe just in terms of a jumping off point Andrew for maybe our non-Australian listeners perhaps you can give us an introduction to the Honourable Andrew Thompson former Federal Government Minister lawyer Japanophile Hickory Golf Gaijin and of course son of the five times Open champion Peter Thompson well yeah I I carry a lot of historical baggage I guess Um, personally professionally, uh, but I'm really a retired legislator living in obscurity in a a part of Japan that few people visit. Uh, uh, That is outside the city of Fukuoka on the coast, uh, looking across uh, towards uh, Korea and the Chinese mainland. Uh, It's a beautiful part of the world. There's some very good golf down there. 
uh, although people tend to focus more on the well-known courses, uh, the Kawana course near Tokyo, or Hirono Golf Club, and a few others around Osaka, uh, Kobe, uh, and Tokyo. But uh, uh, I like uh, you know country life in Japan, so I live down there, and I come back to Melbourne uh, every so often uh, when the country's uh, open for visitors. Uh, because the golf in Victoria, uh, it's just historically blessed with courses that you know rarely appear elsewhere. And if you venture a little further towards uh, the island of Van Diemen's Land, now known as Tasmania, uh, it in some places even better. So this is a very good part of the world for golfers. Oh, it certainly is. Uh, and look, before we get into your your little trip to the UK uh, earlier this summer. Yeah, when I was doing a bit of research for, 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 for our chat, I was struck by the following extract from Golf Digest and an interview with your dad. And I think it kind of encapsulates an awful lot about what he thought about the game. And it goes a little bit something like this. There are some people who can't spend time on a practice fairway without being videoed. Thompson once told the Australian newspaper The Age. But when they get to the application stage, they can't get it out of their head how they look. Your attention can only focus on one thing, not several things. It's actually ball hitting a bat, never mind how you do it. Making golf a science and insisting that people study it, they get the feeling this is difficult. Whereas, really, they should consider it easy because it is. It's just whacking a ball, for goodness sakes. That really spoke to me in terms of, uh, you know, just an outlook on golf. And we, we I guess, as a, as a, as a human species tend to make things difficult when as your dad said it's just whacking the ball for goodness sakes yeah well it goes back to uh you know his childhood uh i think uh where he really did teach himself how to play uh he was struck with polio as a child and uh, uh was lucky it wasn't a severe case and the doctor advised his mother. Uh, he, she was a single mother, by the way. His father had sort of disappeared in the depression. Uh, he came back later. So uh, he was t uh, told or she was told that he had to walk as much as possible. And as it happened, they lived close to a large public park in Melbourne called Royal Park, which has a nine-hole golf course. And eventually uh, his grandmother, uh, sorry, his grandfather, my grandmother's father, uh, who had begun life as a draft horse breeder. Uh, he noticed uh, the young boy uh, was sort of took an interest in the golfers on, on the public course, and so he gave him, uh, in the beginning, a left-handed uh, click, hickory click, I think, and Dad started sort of experimenting with it, having found some lost balls along the railway track. He changed to a right-handed uh, club, I think a pyrotone, Sort of two iron uh, shortly thereafter. He, he was semi-ambidextrous. He used to bat in cricket left-handed. Um, so he taught himself, uh, and you use that verb, to hit. Everything was about hitting. Um, there was no one there, uh, as I understand it, to talk to him about keeping his left shoulder up or pivoting and all these other movements of the body. To him, it was you know how to hit this ball with the face of the club at 90 degrees uh, to where you want the ball to go. He used to use that phrase with me sometimes. Uh, and so he taught himself how to hit it. 
uh, not sort of how to swing or anything like that. It was all about hitting it because that's how you get it uh, to its objective. And uh, he, he never sort of lost that notion that uh, anything beyond hitting the ball was a needless complication uh, and could you know, really only do damage uh, to a player. I guess that's my take on it. It's it's perspective, you know. I mean, you know, really. As I delved a little bit deeper over the last week or so, and uh, I, I ran through your dad's record at the Open Championship, and it's it's remarkable to think. By the time he was twenty eight years of age, he'd finished first or second in the championship for seven years straight. I mean, it, it would appear that the mental and physical preparation for the Open appears to have been his main focus from the, you know, possibly the very beginning. I mean, it was really. The, 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 the pinnacle of the sport, perhaps, as, as he saw it. Yeah, uh, you know, we see it these days as, you know, four major tournaments for men uh, and a series of other, uh, you know, aspirations, whether it's, you know, week-to-week PGA Tour tournaments or European Tour or the Australian Open or the Japan Open, if you're a Japanese player. But um, I think he saw the game... Uh, as a series of attempts to win prize money through the year to support himself and then his family, uh, and one lofty goal. Every year you you aspired to be the champion goal for the year, so you prepared for that. That, that was the goal. Now, obviously, you know, the players in the United States had a, maybe you might call it a broader perspective because you know, they had the U.S. Masters and the U.S. Open, their own championship and their PGA championship, which was sort of coming along as a major. Um, but, uh, you know, for a, a young fellow from Australia, and I think the same can be said for the South Africans and you know, the Kiwis, uh, it was the Open Championship that, that mattered. That's how you made your mark on the world. So he prepared for that uh not not you know hours and hours on the practice range it, it was all in his head and certainly w- when you know when the championship was on foot he'd spend hours in his hotel room uh, when he wasn't reading mahatma gandhi or something uh, just thinking about each hole and how he was going to survive it or birdie it that's how it was done did your dad view his win at Royal Birkdale in 65 any differently to the other four? 65, um, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, by that time the field was different. There was much more you know, hoopla and you know, the um, the influence of the uh, American uh, media, you would you, you would have called it the press in those days, uh, was much more significant in the mid-60s than it was in the 50s. Uh, so therefore, I think for him it was significant. But the other thing about it is that he was 36 years old. So to be able to do it, you know, in his 30s, uh, as he'd done it, you know, uh, four times in his 20s, I think that was, uh, you know, a very important thing. Because you know, at the age of thirty-six, uh, he really had three young children, and you know, the, to be blunt, the financial burden of that was growing very fast. So he had to assure himself um, that he was able to earn prize money sufficient, you know, to support the family. And two years later, in nineteen sixty-seven, he won the Australian Open again, and 
that was, so my mother sort of quietly says, this was another big milestone, not because it was the national title of his home country, but because it proved that he could still win and earn. And, uh, you know, th this was important, you know, up there in, in the head. Because I think, you know, as any professional sports uh, player, man or woman, knows very well, you know, if, you, if your form starts to fade, then you know, your confidence uh, is at risk. And, you know, once you start losing your confidence, you can't win. So to be able to regularly prevail at that age, um, it was very important because, you know, you turn 36, there's some guy who's 22 who's a real threat. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's your family's sort of livelihood, unless you're a, you know, extremely wealthy players some of them are these days by the by the age of 30 uh, but in those days you know th this was going to work and family you know family needs a budget money so uh, dad used to sometimes say that he, he thought professional golf was a gambling life and he, he didn't want me to go anywhere near a gambling life but uh, that's that's what uh, uh, destiny had at him do. So um, 1965, in that sense, yeah, it was a, as much a, a statement to his peers that he could still do it. Um, <clears throat> and he still wanted to win, you know, well into the early 70s. You know, when he was 40, he still thought he could beat, you know, the younger guys. Didn't quite happen, but uh, he was still trying. He used to say that he, he played the Open 30 times and lost 25 of them. So <laughs> maybe that's how he thought until he must have finally said to himself, um, it, the time has passed, I can't do it anymore. Um, so uh, I wasn't really around uh, as a, you know, even as a teenager to uh, observe a lot of that, but I, I learned about it later. Yeah, amongst the recent reportage associated with the 150th staging of the RNA's annual Golf and Jamboree at St Andrews, one feature really jumped out to me, namely your circumnavigation of the UK with, I think, your friend Tony Rule paying homage and remembrance to the open road of venues that your dad loved so much. What can you tell us about the trip? Well, um, yesterday I published a, sort of an essay about it, or an essay I wrote about it was published here in Australia in the Golf Societies of Australia's uh, quarterly magazine. But let me tell you briefly, um, in early 2018, uh, when Dad was going downhill, you know, very steadily with Parkinson's disease, uh, my mother said to him uh, that she would have a small portion of his ashes uh, scattered on the old course. And uh, he said, well, um, I'm not sure that's a great idea. You know, it might cause a bit of a fuss in the town. And I don't want to cause a fuss, but he said, there's obviously nothing I can do to stop you. So uh, uh, he passed away uh, in June of that year and uh, my mother and I talked about it and, uh, you know, the next Open Championship was at Royal Portrush. So it wasn't really uh, opportune. We didn't really want to go all the way to Portrush, uh, the two of us, uh, and stop in St Andrews on the way or whatever. So we sort of postponed and thought, well, maybe next year. And 
Then the you know pandemic began and everything was postponed again and again until finally, you know, the clouds really lifted last year and with the Open Championship at St Andrews uh, this year, 2022, it was obvious our time had come to do it. But by earlier this year, my mother was well, feeling a little frail. So she said to me, look, you better go alone. You know, go with your friends and watch the Open Championship and, you know, just do what... Uh, We'd promised uh, your father. So that was the original idea. And sitting in Japan in the months uh, earlier this year, uh, my friend Tony Rule, who's now captain of Royal Melbourne Golf Club, uh, he had arranged a series of visits uh, to introduce himself as captain uh, to some of the reciprocal clubs in Britain. And that included uh, Royal Liverpool, Royal Birkdale and Royal Lytham. So he said to me, you know, would I come with him uh, as a decoration? So I said, yeah, sure, I'll come. I'm, I look forward to trying to beat you uh, on any course on God's earth. And if it happens to be an open road, of course, all the better. So, uh, you know, okay, the two of us agreed to make this trip and to stop in the, uh, or Woodley uh, in near Leeds on the way and then go up to St Andrews. And once we'd sort of put this plan uh, to bed, so to speak, I suddenly thought, well, hang on. Um, you know, Tony's talking about three courses where Dad won an Open Championship. So, you know, maybe some of the ashes ought to go on each course. So I suggested it to my mother, and she said, yes, that's a very timely idea. Just go do that. So uh, we went to each course, and uh, I took with me a set of, or a half set of Dunlop Maxfly uh, clubs, which we're pretty sure Dad used to win the 1958 Open Championship uh, at Lytham. Uh, I took a two wood and a two four six eight iron uh, pitching wedge, sand wedge, and a hickory putter uh, in a small sort of pencil bag. Uh, they're actually too heavy to carry around a full set, uh, but a half set was just right. Uh, so playing with them um, after each round, uh, I quietly you know, put a little bit of uh, Dad's ashes on the 18th green when nobody was looking. And uh, so we did that at each of the clubs uh, there on the Cheshire and Lancashire coast. And um, I told my hosts afterwards, after, you know, each day, what I'd done. I didn't want to you know, have them discover it by accident later and think that I'd been sort of sneaky. So, and you know, everybody was very decorous and you know, rather moved by it. Um, but I, I did manage to do it uh, with nobody looking, and so that was that was done. And then when we got to uh, St Andrews. You know, the Open Championship, as you say, it's a big jamboree. The course itself is all barriered off and you, know, you, you may be a, an important spectator. It doesn't include me, but you can't just walk on you know, the fairway. So, again, I, I thought, well, uh, you know, I owe the RNA a, an obligation to you know, consult with them and I'm a member of the club and I know Martin Slumbers and you know the various... Um, office holders you know, very well so I said to them quietly I'd like to do it but if it was 
inconvenient during the championship, well, uh, that's fine. I'd wait till afterwards. But they said, well, we don't control the course. That's the, the Lynx Trust does. You know, we, we just hold the tournament there. So they consulted the Lynx Trust and the word came back, yes. So uh, Sandy Reid, the director of courses, um, he and I spoke on the telephone. He said, meet me at a quarter to seven on Sunday morning and uh, by the first green. And I, I said, well, how will I recognize you? And he said, oh, I'm follically challenged, follically challenged. So uh, he, he was and he is a nice fella. So Tony uh, came with me uh, to uh, get my mother on the, you know, the video FaceTime to watch. And uh, John Hopkins, who was a friend of dad's and had been the Times golf correspondent uh, for a long time, he had, he'd heard about the... The, the, the trip and what we'd done in Cheshire and Lancashire, and he was going to write a story about it, and that's fine, you know, it's, it's not a you know secret. So I said, well, given that you were a friend of Dad's and you know what we've done so far, you'd better witness the last uh, of these uh, acts. So he came along as well, and you know, quarter to seven on Sunday morning, it was a little chilly, and uh, the staff were cutting the greens and preparing for the first group to tee off at 7.20. Now, there were a few people about. And so we just very quietly uh, did the same thing at the back of the 18th green. And uh, that was good. It was done. So fine, Sunday starts and um, the final round. And, you know, the crowd was very worked up about Rory McIlroy and so forth. Um, it seemed that he had seen off Scotty Scheffler and the other <clears throat> potential uh, you know, challenges. And then in the afternoon, uh, you know, a, miracle, a miracle of sorts happened uh, with Cam Smith making five birdies and holding his nerve and then a birdie at the last. And uh, it was really 12 hours after uh, what we'd done in the morning that Smith was able uh, to put himself into the you know, history books as the champion golfer of the year, um, 21 years since an Australian had done it. And I, I, I really, I, a shiver went down my spine. Um, Tony and I, uh, John Hopkins and Sandy Reid were the only ones who knew. Well, a few others, I suppose, during the day had learned what we'd done. Um, but uh, it, it was as if, uh, well, something sort of supernatural had happened. Uh, but it reminded me immediately of Kel Nagel, uh, you know, surviving or you know, holding Arnold Palmer off by a shot on the same green, um, uh, the 1960. So um, that's what happened. And uh, uh, my mother sort of implored me uh, to keep it you know, as quiet as possible, but uh, I, I thought a minor sort of act of, of golf history had taken place in a, in a strange way. So I decided I should tell the world about it, and I did that night. And so it became well-known. Uh, anyway, that's that's what happened. Uh, I wouldn't encourage everybody uh, to do the same, uh, but uh, it was just a gesture that uh, we, we felt we owed Dad, uh, and now we've done it. So we're very satisfied. No, no, for sure. You know, and you mentioned, you know, we're speaking on the week of uh, the Australian Open. 
And of course, your dad's name is synonymous with Victoria Golf Club, who are obviously one of the co-hosts and I think are doing most of the heavy lifting with the the course in play all four days. Um, Mm. Obviously, your dad joined Victoria as a 16-year-old. I'm just interested to know how the opportunity to join the club uh, arose for young Peter Thompson. Well, as I understand it, um, you know, he had become uh, in Melbourne golf circles, well known as um, a potential, uh, you know, noteworthy player, and I think like Britain and Ireland, um, you know, we have a club competition uh, at junior, you know, adult levels. Uh, we don't really have a college or university golf competition. So clubs uh, are these days, and, and they were at that time, and uh, on the lookout for talent. So Victoria Golf Club. Uh, was an interesting institution because a lot of the golf clubs in Melbourne and I, I guess other parts of Australia, you know, they went very close to going under financially in the Depression. And Victoria Golf Club was one of the first uh, to overcome the sectarian uh, divide that, you know, had poisoned Australian society in those early decades. So a number of Irish Catholic Australians joined that club. And uh, they, you know, they some of them were sort of professional, wealthy men, pub owners, whatever. Um, and they were really uh, keen to recruit uh, you know, talent for the club team, uh, perhaps more so than the Protestant members. I, I don't quite know why. Uh, but... Uh, it, it, it was something about those Irish Catholic guys. Uh, and later on, when my father married for the second time, uh, my mother, who whose maiden name was Stella Mary Kelly, and whose grandmother came from Holy Cross in the county court. So it was a sort of an interesting joining of the circle there. So it was those men uh, who went out and you know saw Dad and said, right, come across. Uh, we want you to play for us. And, uh, you know, that led to, uh, I think, a boost in his confidence that, yeah, he, he must have felt as a 16-year-old that he was really getting on in life. And um, uh, I think it was around that time that his father reappeared. And although his mother and father had divorced after his father had disappeared in the Depression, they married again. They remarried. Uh, so dad, dad was a 16-year-old boy who'd grown up as an only child with a single mother um, who really struggled. Um, so he was his own young man in his head, I think, at that time. Uh, but this must have been a big boost, you know, to go to Victoria Golf Club, which was a, you know, a blue-chip club uh, in Melbourne, and it had a, a really good course. Uh, so that was the launching pad really for what became uh, a professional career. And by the way, it was those same members uh, who had recruited him uh, from Municipal Royal Park who put the money up to fly him to New Zealand and, well, to fly him to Sydney first and New Zealand to to start winning tournaments as a young professional. Uh, they staked him. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, that that's how it happened. Unusually, at the time when he when he did finally turn pro, he eschewed the practice of becoming a profession with a club attachment. 
instead he followed i believe in the footsteps of his mentor or one of his mentors norman van nieder who uh, took the young palaget under his wing Van Niet, I believe, was so sure to Peter's prospects that he suggested that they should pool their winnings and split the pool 50-50. How common were arrangements of this nature back in those days? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> what happened was that, uh, I mean, the, the Professional Golfers Association of Australia was organised as a federation. Every state you know, had its own you know, semi-autonomous uh, uh, chapter. And they made the rules. So if you wanted to be a professional golfer, you had to do an apprenticeship at a club. So he was lucky in that uh, a professional here in Melbourne at the time, George Naismith at Riversdale Golf Club, uh, had a certain contempt uh, for those closed shop rules. So he agreed to take my father on as an apprentice uh, with almost no duties uh, in the pro shop. He said, you are an apprentice, you meet the requirements of the PGA rules, you, you'll be an apprentice for a year, but go play tournaments, son. Go win, go get out there and win. And he did, so that's what happened. Uh, so the apprenticeship was really uh, a nominal one, uh, that's all. Uh, and uh, when Norman von Eider, you know, saw him and competed against him. He, he, what a generosity of spirit that, you know, instead of turning his back on a young man who was probably a threat to his own, you know, the prize money potential, uh, he said, no, 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 let's, let's go do this. Let's really do this together. So perhaps um, it might have come from horse racing. Uh, Norman von Eider was very keen on uh, horse races or race horses and he and dad owned a few together over the years and i think the uh, the notion of splitting a prize pool between co-owners of a, a race horse was probably what norman had in mind uh, i don't know how often it happened with other players um these days you'd probably uh, you know end up in some sort of legal wrangle about it all but things were a lot less formal then Van Leyden, of course, had been a trailblazer for Australian professionals as he headed off to America just after the end of the Second World War. How important was Van Leyden's influence on your father over the early days of his professional career? Oh, I think it, it was the major influence. Uh, again, go back to well, put yourself in sort of dad's shoes. Uh, he had no father figure in his life uh, growing up. So the men... Uh, at Victoria Golf Club, who had sort of helped him uh, emerge from uh, you know, semi-poverty and this little municipal course, you know, they were important figures, but they, they, there were a number of them, whereas Norman was one man and, and a successful professional. He was exactly what Dad aspired to be. So uh, he showed Dad how to dress uh, with a, a slight flamboyance, uh, which was quite unnatural to to dad and his sort of Scottish Presbyterian sort of background. Um, but uh, Norman was the sort of guy who could attract a crowd. I'm sure he'd learnt that uh, from watching some of the successful Americans, Gene Saras and others, uh, who who really knew how to cause a fuss and and you know bring people to watch them. Uh, so dad 
he said that he copied a lot of things as a young man. He he copied parts of you know, Ben Hogan's swing or Byron Nelson's swing and Sam Snead. He he would watch and copy, and he used to quietly say that people had uh, described his own action in hitting a ball as sort of unique. But he didn't see it that way. He saw it as a an amalgam of what he'd witnessed and and copied and. Norman's Norman Bonita's sort of way of doing things as a professional. Um, some of it rubbed off on Dad. I think he he knew quietly um, that people want to watch a player uh, do something. Uh, that sounds a sort of a pretty obvious, rather trite thing to say, but that's the essence of professional golf: getting people to watch you play well and win. So. Norman's example, and Norman Vanita uh, had sort of stood on the shoulders of others before him, as Dad always said, he stood on Norman's shoulders to do, in in a way, what he did. Uh, and likewise, you know, Bobby Locke had a a way of dressing and behaving and, and a decorum that attracted people. Uh, so you know, that that was. Uh, think, putting myself in Dad's shoes at that time, if I can, that's what happened. You know, he saw what other men had done successfully, and he, he tried to do the same in his own way. Just following on from, obviously, Von Neider's time in the States, I think your dad spent probably half the year competing in America from 51 to 1960. I understand that he considered the United States uh, an overpowering envi- environment, resolving that when I learnt all I wanted to learn, I left. What sort of welcome were foreigners likely to get from the indigenous US-based professionals in the 1950s? Well, it was anything but war, I, I gather. Um, first of all, Dad spoke often about the sort of physical nature uh, of the tour in those days. The golf courses were very second-rate, uh, and the hotel accommodation uh, was poor. Uh, often he had to share a hotel room with Sam Sneed uh, because neither of them smoked cigarettes. Uh, and you know, Sam liked him, and uh, Dad could be relied upon not to turn up at the hotel room until 9 o'clock at night when Sam had uh, uh, finished his uh, extracurricular activity. Let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, Dad was also uh, pretty much a teetotaler. So th- they got on well. Uh, but grinding away week after week, in, in you know, uh, it, it, they weren't idyllic circumstances. Uh, people really don't understand uh, that it was a fairly grim life in, in many ways. Uh, so he did it, and it, it, it provided prize money. Uh, and... Uh, he didn't really enjoy it much. Uh, and then he decided uh, that after four Open Championships, uh, it was sort of time to go home and the prospect of opening up professional play in Asia uh, sort of came upon him um, as an idea, really prompted by the Dunlop Company, which in those days was British. And they had a distribution network for their tires in Asia, and they were you know, making sporting equipment. So uh, someone had suggested that if he, as a Dunlop-endorsed uh, player and an Open champion, 
would start playing uh, more often in these very small tournaments in places like India and Hong Kong, the Philippines and Japan. You know, it would help them sell uh, their equipment. And so that was a very convenient uh, sort of fork in the road for him, that he could give up uh, this, you know, this drudgery of playing in the United States for months on end and uh, stay much closer to home. Uh, and my half-sister, Deirdre, had been born uh, by then. So, you know, he had a family in, in Australia. Uh, they, they were not going to travel with him. Uh, so that's really, I think, what led to him deciding to give up playing in the United States, whereas some people saw it as, uh, you know, their ultimate objective, and, and you know, they, they emigrated there in the end. But no, he, he was always keener to stay home in Australia and, and play the Open Championship every year in Britain and other tournaments uh, there where possible. So that's as I understand what happened. I read recently that he believed that the rest of the golfing world, maybe at the time, were and maybe perhaps are still are mesmerised by the USA and US, US golfers. What do you think he meant by that comment? So, uh, what is it that's uh, mesmerizing about uh, you know, golf in the United States or professional sport there? Well, to start with, it, obviously, the opportunity uh, to you know, earn uh, amounts of money that you can't earn elsewhere and you know, makes life a lot easier for uh, professionals and their families. Uh, I don't know how much... Um, you know the the glamour or or, or the attention uh, of the tour there really matters uh, to the players. It was interesting when the defections from the USPGA tour to the uh, Live Golf uh, really happened uh, during the year. It struck me that some of the players were sick to death uh, of all the media attention and, and the constant week after week pressure to. No comment and you know be a celebrity and so forth that they were much more uh, at ease with playing fewer tournaments because there, there was much less scrutiny maybe I'm wrong I don't know but uh, I mean the, the United States you should re remember that dad went back there in the 80s uh, and made quite a success of what was then called the senior tour and he Kel Nagel Guy Wollstenholm and one or two others from here they really enjoyed their time in the United States in the 80s. My mother spent weeks and weeks with him. Um, and it, it was a much more welcoming place by then. Uh, the quality of accommodation and the golf courses and so forth was quite different from the 1950s. And Dad was quite a student of uh, American history. He, he, he had a shelf full of books about the history of Texas and emigration to the West and all this sort of thing. Uh, he wasn't such a constitutional sort of scholar, you know, Jefferson and Adams and all that, but he was very interested in the emigration of the Scots-Irish uh, to the United States and you know, the effect that that had happened on things. So he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't dislike America as such. It was simply the 50s were not very pleasant, whereas, you know, move on to the 80s and, you know, there was good money to be made there on, you know, good golf courses and uh, people were very pleasant. Uh, there wasn't any hostility towards the foreign players on the senior tour. I, I went for a few weeks myself and uh, you know, we were welcome 
wherever we went, from Santa Fe, Texas, all sorts of places. You, you know, you mentioned his uh, 1984-85 season on the US Senior Tour. 11 wins were, were bagged, in fact, between September 84 and October 85. Pretty spectacular, including a US Senior PGA Championship. I understand that a very special Japanese Dunlop ball may have been involved. What can you tell us about this particular purple patch in Peter's career? Well, I've got a couple of them still uh, uh, at home uh, in Japan. I, I don't think I've got any here in Melbourne. Uh, but Dunlop was taken over uh, by the Sumitomo Rubber Company, uh, I think in what was it, the early 70s. And uh, Dad was there helping Japan established its golf tour, uh, you know, coming in as a, a five times open champion and helping to attract Japanese sponsors. And one of the young men uh, that he sort of took under his wings, a guy called Onishi san, uh, Hisamitsu Onishi. And he worked for the Dunlop Company in a division that uh, they uh, created to manage golf tournaments. Yeah, Onishi was a very clever young guy, and Dad taught him to speak English. <laughs> and uh, he's still around today in his sort of late 80s. So Onishi was a uh, you know up-and-coming Japanese uh, executive within Dunlop, and he was in charge at some point of uh, equipment uh, and developing uh, new models of clubs and balls and so forth. And it, it was Onishi and his sort of R&D team that came up with the idea of a dodecahedron pattern of dimples on a ball. And they tested it uh, in the laboratory and thought it would work. <clears throat> and uh, it became the DDH ball, uh, along with the normal sort of Dunlop Maxfly balls that we all used in those days. So in the, in the beginning, uh, Onishi tried to get as many Japanese professionals to use it as possible and uh, some of them didn't think it worked but one uh, Taiwanese guy, Shane Minan, won a couple of tournaments with it and said this, this is a good ball. So dad was up there playing and you know, yeah sure and she, yeah, give me a, you know, a few dozen of them uh, <clears throat> by which time you know, we're now in sort of, you know, it was the 80s and so he took them to the United States and he found that the ball uh, had a sort of lower trajectory, and yet it, it would stop uh, remarkably quickly on the green. So he didn't really uh, make a fuss about it, but he began to win uh, regularly. And in, in that particular year, you know, he, he'd win sort of two or three weeks in a row. And <clears throat> he, he really felt it was a combination of the Mizuno irons, even though he was contracted to Dunlop, he liked a set of Mizuno irons, the Mizuno irons and the Dunlop DDH ball uh, that did it. Anyway, word got around pretty quickly uh, that, you know, Peter had this unusual Japanese golf ball, which was, you know, compliant with the rules. There's nothing, you know, nothing sort of dodgy about it. So uh, some of the balls were, uh, well, to put it bluntly, were stolen from his golf bag. Um, so that, uh, well, so his caddy said, Russell, uh, his caddy said that, you know, some guy had come in and stolen some of our golf balls. Uh, anyway, Dad finished the season with uh, a number of uh, uh, victories and uh, he called up Onishi and said, um, 
you know, thank you very much. That ball really worked. Would you send me another sort of, you know, 10 dozen? And Onishi said, oh, Peter, um, unfortunately, we don't make them anymore. We've changed the, the pattern slightly. We've got a better one. Oh, no, 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 no. You, that's the one. Oh, no, Peter, son, uh, we have a better one. Well, the better one didn't work. So uh, oh there, there were a few of them uh, around somewhere in one of Dad's old golf bags with, with his name, P. Thompson, in you know, English on the side. So I, I kept them, uh, and uh, I wouldn't ever dare you know, take them out and play with them. There's no point. But that's what happened that year. Uh, and it goes back a little bit to what uh, Dad would often say about professional golf in the 50s, that it was as much a matter of finding the best driver or putter you know, equipment as, as you could get your hands on uh, as how well you happen to play uh, over the 72 holes. So, you know, Kel Nagel's victory in the Centenary Open uh, over Arnold at the old course, it was really due to finding a set of McGregor Woods uh, as much as, you know, the advice that Dad gave Kel about the old course and all that sort of thing. No, they went to the McGregor factory before they left the United States and uh, they tried out uh, as many McGregor Woods as they could until they, they found the best one because Kel had a, a set of Woods that, that just weren't working. So uh, that ball, you know, basically uh, paid my sisters and I uh, our school fees uh, for quite a while. <laughs> So you know, these days, I, I guess the the differences in uh, you know the quality of the heads or shafts or whatever are so so minuscule uh, that uh, it may not really matter much uh, you know what the player goes out to to hit the ball with. But in you know even in the eighties, that ball made a difference. Between his first Open win in July '54 and his last European win at the Martini Invitational at Conwy in. 1970. Peter would win 28 times uh, in Europe. His contemporaries in the circuit at the time would have been Harry Bradshaw in the early days, maybe Roberto Di Vincenzo, Christy O'Connor Sr., Neil Coles and Cal Nagel, of course. Who did he feel his biggest rivals were in Europe? Oh, I think he saw pretty much everyone as you know, a competitor. Uh, I don't think at that time there was a, a big three as had been sort of manufactured with Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Gary Player. I, I guess that was Mark McCormack sort of manufacturing, you know, the public rivalry. Um, I, I guess from year to year, <clears throat> different players would you know, peak uh, and fall in their form. And, you know, Dad had his ups and downs. But... Uh, he sort of went out there really to beat everybody. Uh, and he had some, you know, good friends among them. When, when, for example, when he and Dave Thomas played off uh, the 1958 Open, 36 holes on, you know, uh, <clears throat> the final day or the playoff day, um, the two of them between the rounds, they went and had lunch together uh, with their wives, in, in this case, my mother and girlfriend. So there they are at Lytham in the morning playing 18 holes as half of the playoff. Lunchtime, they all go back to a hotel down the road where they were staying and they lunch together. 
Why would they go and do that? Well, one reason was because the professionals were not allowed in the clubhouse. Uh, so they had to go back to the hotel for lunch. But can you imagine today, if you had a 36-hole playoff between two competitors, that they'd go back with their wives and girlfriends and you know, a few sausages for lunch together? Well, they did. And <clears throat> Dave Thomas came out to Australia a few times afterwards. I remember him as a sort of, uh, when I was a small boy. And so, you know, they, they, they had friendships as well as uh, rivalries, perhaps. Um, I don't think Dad and Christy got on very well for some reason, uh, which was a pity. Uh, but, um, you know, um, you tee up uh, on the first day of 72 holes and you know, there's 150 other fellows to beat. If there was one particular one, you know, you felt was the biggest threat to you, um, well, you know, you might have been flattering yourself to think that, you know, you'd won the tournament before you'd even started. No, Dad was one one of 150 or so. Anyone could have won. But, yeah, he was dominant for a while in uh, many of those tournaments. But I, I, he, he wasn't a person to encourage that sort of feeling that, you know, there was a rivalry. Um, it wasn't so. And I, I don't think uh, Don Bradman did that in cricket either. Uh, he was captain of the Australian Test 11 and you know, he, they'd play anyone um, and mix with the opponents afterwards. Maybe Douglas Jardine was an exception to that because of body line. But in golf, um, it was a fairly collegiate affair. Your dad wrote regular columns for the Age newspaper in Melbourne for nigh on 50 years. In addition to, the, to other projects, obviously, with Golf Digest, just wondering how the opportunity arose to write on the age. I don't know how it began. It actually <clears throat> it began with another newspaper before that called the Argus, Melbourne Argus, which eventually folded. Um, but he he'd been well educated. I mean, in the sort of state uh, school system in those days, uh, and you know, with a fairly driven single mother, um, Grace. Uh, you know, he, he tried hard to be a good student at school and you know, writing good, clear English was you know, seen as a very important thing in those days. It's sadly not valued uh, that way now. Um, so he obviously was able to do it, but more than that, I think he enjoyed it. And so this idea of playing a tournament and then sitting down with a little Olivetti typewriter and bashing out you know, a few paragraphs afterwards, uh, it must have become a, a sort of a habit. And he wouldn't have done it um, unless he enjoyed it. Uh, it didn't pay very much, but uh, <clears throat> no, um, he wrote all his life. Uh, he never really sat down and wrote a full manuscript for a book, but he wrote a lot of forwards to other gold books. And uh, he he passed it on to me. I enjoy writing English or Japanese, um, <clears throat> and um, I, I guess after his tournament career had finished, uh, he was certainly in the Age newspaper able to write longer, uh, more thoughtful columns uh, as a third-party observer of what was going on, and he had a, an interesting way of criticising things. He, he was, uh, he didn't use a lot of adjectives in his writing. It was sort of nouns and verbs. And it was, 
often quite blunt stuff. So some of the battles uh, within golf in those days, the small ball versus the big ball, appearance money and things like that, uh, he, he was able through those columns uh, to express his opinion uh, very clearly. And, you know, there's a bit of a historical record in that. Uh, I wish more uh, players these days would sit down uh, you know, with a, a fountain pen and a piece of paper or a, <clears throat> a keyboard um, and you know, put, put their own thoughts down. Uh, but it doesn't, doesn't seem to happen much now. At Mike Clayton's suggestion, I bought Steve Perkins' book with a collection of some of your dad's best pieces. It's a masterpiece. I believe it's a reprint, I think, of a, a similar book published a couple of years back. For those who might be interested, I'll put a link up in the show notes to the pub- publisher, Stattery Media's uh, online um, online shop. Well worth a, a, a purchase and a, and a read. And I, I believe there's also a, a downloadable link, which I'll also include, in the show notes to Peter Mitchell's unofficial and long edit print biography of your dad entitled The Complete Golfer. It amuses me that for someone that clearly loved to write, he never got around to writing the autobiography. But I, I guess through those two particular books, those looking for some deeper insight I could certainly dip into. Obviously, being Irish, we didn't really get too much Australian golf on the TV back in the 80s and 90s when your dad, Peter Ellis and Jack Newton were commentating on the Australian events that were televised nationally. Inside Golf's Andrew Crockett tells us that Thompson regularly shared the commentary box with his good friend, fellow World Golf Hall of Famer Peter Ellis, their voices akin to Richie Benno and Bill Laurie with cricket. Thompson's laconic way with words was perfect for golf commentary, never saying too much, always letting the viewers have their own insights, but never missing a beat with his own innate sense of the game. I can imagine that that duo, Alice and Thompson, were quite an interesting duo on TV in terms of just uh, commentating on the golf. Well, yeah, they they were um, good friends and they were very entertaining to listen to in private as well uh, when you know, they could have a dram or two. Uh, you, you couldn't take uh, a bottle of uh, Glen Ranji into the commentary box, but at home, uh, the two of them... Uh, uh, here in Melbourne, or occasionally travelling, uh, they were great pals, and uh, you know, in, the, in their own way, uh, they had a, a certain style uh, of commentary that people you know, learned to value. Um, I, you know, I heard a lot of it as a young fellow watching uh, golf broadcasts at home, and Dad was down at the course here in Melbourne or another part of Australia commentating, so it, it was a yeah, it was a lot of fun to sort of hear your own dad there on the, on the telly, as we used to call it. Um, but he, he did have a, a certain bluntness. A lot of the commentators uh, were reluctant to criticise a poor shot. Uh, but, you know, in every tournament, especially in the last sort of nine holes with the leaders and others, you know, people play some appalling shots. And dad would sort of pause and then say, what a shocking shot that and everybody would be shocked but he could get away with saying it it was sort of would have been seen as disrespectful uh if others had said it but uh having you know been in the same position himself he was entitled to say that what an appalling shock uh and obviously um i think the the viewers of the television broadcasts quite enjoyed that sort of frankness 
Yeah, maybe we could take a quick look at his uh, a bit of his design career. I must admit that I've limited experience playing uh, courses that uh, Peter Thompson had a hand in designing or improving. The best I can do is Camden Lakeside in the western suburbs of Sydney and Long Reef, also in Sydney, come to mind as two courses that were influenced by your dad and his partners. I know that would interest some comments from Peter relating to the use of large bodies of water on golf courses, which apparently he detested are a terrible torment for most players to disrupt the flow of the game. Unsurprisingly, he was all for small burns from which you could always uh, fall into, but always retrieve your ball. I, I guess he was more for the strategic use of water than the penal use of water. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, he felt it was, uh, uh, how do you say not a coward's way out, but it, it was you know, very unimaginative uh, to put a body of water in a place where a, you know, a large body of water, where, where a ball may well fly, simply because there's no artistry in it. Um, you, you might be able to decorate the edges of a large lake and you know, make it sort of look attractive, but the essence of golf architecture was in creating a landscape or using an existing landscape on which to play golf. Now, you can't play golf on water. Your ball is gone. So uh, by keeping the water as far away from play as possible, if you have to store it, and that golf course, Camden Lakeside, I built myself. I was the young sort of superintendent uh, of construction there. And because the, um, the soil is clay and it's in a rain shadow in that part of Sydney, uh, we had no choice but to create, I think, four large dams or lakes. And we did our very best to keep them out of play as far as possible. Um, you know, some of it inevitably intrudes here and there. But that's the essence of what he was about, that uh, it, it, it's the, 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 the dullest thing you can do is to put a whole lot of water right in front of a drain. Um, and uh, even some of the things that crept back into Augusta National uh, Golf Club's course over the years that were really not there in the beginning when Mackenzie and Jones uh, laid it out and designed it. Um, I don't know. It's partly the in influence, perhaps, of television. Uh, there's no doubt that the television uh, produces, the golf uh, program produces, they like water because it adds an element of drama. Uh, in their minds, you know, disaster, ball goes in water, bang, you know, didn't Jordan Spieth put two or three in a row in the water or something, or, you know, oh, you know, drama. But uh, to Dad's classical way of thinking, that's really not playing golf. It, it's suffering a, a sort of a, a terrible misadventure. Uh, okay, you might say, well, you should be skillful enough to keep it out of the water. Well, fine but uh, you know, he grew up playing golf on on earth <laughs> and turf and uh, you know, the, the classical architecture that he played on and absorbed and read about uh, and he founded the James Braid Society in Britain uh, you know out of admiration for what Braid had done so that was his notion or one of the basic notions uh, in architecture but I, I have to say that the pieces of land uh, that he and his partners were given in the 70s and 80s, with one or two exceptions, were pretty awful pieces of land. And, you know, it's 
Now, you look these days at the courses being created now, Tasmania or New Zealand or parts of the United States, and uh, um, bless their hearts, uh, these modern golf architects uh, are often given glorious pieces of land on which to you know, practice their craft. Uh, but that wasn't the case in the 70s and 80s. So clay soil, you know, awful swampy stuff that, you know, surrounded a housing subdivision. You couldn't build houses on it, so you could excavate and create uh, you know, land on which uh, you could plant turf. But uh, yeah, that's the, the fate that uh, life dealt him uh, in his golf architecture. Um, so no complaints. But honestly, that's really what it was all about. How, how would you characterize his approach, his general approach to course design? Well, from what he said and wrote, um, and he, he'd often begin, you know, we'd walk around uh, the piece of land that we were given. And he'd walk it and start to feel the layout by walking over the hummocks and up and down the little hills and whatever else. Uh, and then when the basic layout uh, was decided, he and his first partner, Michael Wolverage, uh, would you know, sketch a basic layout. And then Dad would go back to each hole, have a look at the topography of it and make a little sketch with a pencil as if he was standing on the tee. So he'd sketch what he wanted to see from the tee, you know, little shapes and things and what sort of green was there in the distance. And that sketch would then be rendered into uh, a map of the whole as it was to be built. So that, that was his method. That's how he did it. Um, what he did in terms of creating uh, you know, the art uh, of a golf hole, well, um, you know, he liked uh, a certain subtlety, but he, he didn't appreciate uh, sudden shocks. He liked the idea of an elderly lady being able to tee off uh, and survive a hole, uh, even with you know shocks that were 80 yards long. Uh, you know, she had to take seven strokes, you know, to make a par four. Well, fine. Uh, or seven strokes uh, to finish a par four hole, fine. But it, there should, if possible, uh, be both the opportunity for a scratch marker uh, to struggle to make par, but at the same time, you have to allow grandma to be able to finish the hole. So that was the sort of ideal. And uh, it didn't always happen uh, in every case, every hole on every course he did, but... <coughs> That's what he strove to achieve. He obviously revered St. Andrews, um, would uh, obviously buy a house there at some point. Uh, how meaningful was it for him to get the opportunity to design the Duke's course at the home of golf? Well, uh, at the time, the Old Course Hotel uh, was part of the Intercontinental Hotel Group which had been taken over by a large Japanese department store chain called Seibu. And uh, the hotel had for years struggled to get its you know, wealthy patrons games on the old course or the new course you know, in the peak of the summer. So someone came up with the idea of you know, building a course uh, slightly outside the town that was good enough to you know, make the trip 
part of the trip to Scotland worthwhile. Uh, so the Old Course Hotel uh, purchased an option on a large farm up behind the town uh, with a very large house, uh, you know, what do you say, it's almost a castle called Younger, Younger House. Uh, the Younger family produced a tartan ale and uh, Stephen Younger, uh, the, the last surviving member, was sort of still around. So the Cebu uh, department store uh, owner of the uh, Intercontinental hotel, hotel chain uh, suddenly went bankrupt in Japan, overborrowed. So the creditors sold the hotel to a company that Dad had already built two golf courses for, one of which was Camden Lakeside. It was a printing and publishing company uh, which owned a, a lot of golf courses and hadn't gone broke. So uh, one day in uh, Sydney, while we were building that course, Camden Lakeside, my father quietly said to me, oh, I want you to come with me to Scotland next month. Oh, I said, oh, that's a good idea. What, what, we're going to go and play golf? Well, yeah, we will, but we're going to build a golf course at St Andrews. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the owners bought the old course hotel and uh, there's planning permission to build a golf course somewhere. Oh, okay. So that's how it began. Uh, and, uh, you know, we finished it off, an inland course. Uh, the soil, a bit of clay in it, certainly not sandy up there, but it, it was very pleasant. And uh, we, we learned a lot about Scotland in building it, and not all of which I probably should say on air, but uh, um, <clears throat> it was, uh, and it was during that, uh, that time, the construction of that course, that my mother sold the shares uh, that Eli Calloway had given Dad um, in order to use one of the first Calloway woods. Uh, and uh, that's another story. But uh, <clears throat> Eli Calloway, before his company was public, uh, was struggling to find uh, players to use his early uh, woods, and Dad on the seniors to agreed to use it and quite liked it. And Eli said, well, I really don't have any money to give you as a sponsor, but would you take some shares in my, my little company? So Dad said, yeah, sure. Put the shares in his pocket and sort of forgot about it. And some years later, the company was floated on the stock exchange and the shares were worth quite a lot. So my mother sold them and said to me, well, um, if we you know, send the money back to Australia, uh, the tax man will grab us. What do you think we should do? I said, well, as it happens, there's a house for sale in Hope Street, St. Andrews. Why don't you buy that, Mum? Oh, what a good idea. So that's what happened. We bought the house in Hope Street during the construction of the Duke's course and moved in. So thanks to Brilliant. Eli Calloway. Excellent, excellent. But just apropos your uh, your design career, how long did you work with, uh, with the design practice uh, uh, I did notice from your bio pieces that you had some experience designing golf courses, but obviously it was with, with, with your dad. How long were you engaged in that particular uh, career? Well, it was about five years. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'd come back from Japan as a young man about 1990 and uh, went to work for my father uh, sort of a, as his uh, student. So from, as I say, from the, the, the point where you've, you're given the piece of land and you walk it and start to feel the layout um, to, you know, the 
decision about the layout and then the sketching of uh, what you want to see and then the conversion of the sketch into the plan. And then my job was to supervise the construction of each hole uh, and also at the, at the same time uh, try and control the budget. Um, but we were lucky in the sense that we did our course work with our own team of shapers, both, both the basic earthworks and then the fine shaping. They were all fellows that we used all the time. They were originally road builders from suburban Melbourne. And uh, Dad had sort of taught them how to shape uh, holes. And uh, there were two of them that were very good at it, uh, Spider and Larry. And uh, when uh, <clears throat> you know we took Spider and Larry to Scotland, to China, to Japan, all sorts of places, these were fellows, you know, uh, they they weren't road scholars. Um, I mean, you know, a pie and sauce for lunch and a cup of hot tea and back, you know, on the machine, and that was sort of their life. But they they turned into real artists, and they developed their own way of shaping pot bunkers using the front wheels of the front end loader, big rubber wheels to sort of shape the earth. Um, so I, I worked with them for. Uh, that time, uh, and, and as much working sort of under my father, and uh, yeah, it was it was a rare experience. So I do a little bit of advice work in Japan uh, based on that experience now, um, but it's very difficult to persuade, of course, owners and managers in Japan to renovate their courses in such a way as to you know, really provide a what you might call sort of world-class standard of golf because the average player in Japan is, is too timid to tackle such a thing. But we persevere. Your dad's firm, I think, were one of the first designers to put double grains on golf courses in Japan. What did the Japanese make of the double grain when they saw it for the first time? Well, uh, there, there are a few. and um, There's about, I think... There's 14 courses or so that they designed, um, and it depended really on the owner. Um, if you got a really good individual guy uh, who played a bit of golf, uh, certainly you know, in in Britain, more often in Hawaii and America, you know, for J Japanese golfers, but um, those who trusted Dad uh, and were anglophile in nature there are some japanese people who are quite anglophile uh, as opposed to you know, being americanophile uh, and so they agreed it was a, a good idea and it was it was done in some cases there and some of them still remain um, <clears throat> but there's there's not uh, with the exception of, of about a half a dozen uh, golf architecture golf sort of commentators in japan there's just not the number of people there who you know spend their lives appreciating golf architecture to 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 know what they're seeing so you 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 get a you know, a knowledgeable japanese golfer who will play a double green and say wow this is really good and then just move on whereas others um more of our ilk, perhaps, uh, <clears throat> we'll go back and play it a few times and, and really treasure what, what, what we see there. So it's just a matter of experience. Uh, we're, we're lucky that we get to travel 
more often and play the, the great links courses where these double greens exist. And you know, the old course is obviously the number one among them. Uh, but it doesn't happen so often in Asia. But that, I think Dad w was very entertained by the notion of doing it. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, but in Japan, despite Charles Allison bunkers being copied as a, a particular feature, an Allison bunker was what the Japanese describe as a very deep bunker. Uh, I don't think almost anybody copied those double greens. So they're, they're still rare. As somebody who obviously speaks the language and indeed calls Japan home for at least some of the year, I'm keen to get a feel for how golf differs there to perhaps other places. Oh, where do I begin? Um, <clears throat> well, um, if you look at the Pacific War as a sort of dividing line, um, you had courses built before the war in the 20s and early 30s by Charles Allison in particular, and then uh, two Japanese uh, disciples of his went on uh, to build a few more before the war. And uh, <clears throat> they learned from Allison the craft of golf design, layouts, <clears throat> shaping, and so forth. And each of them developed their own you know, subtle style. Uh, and then <clears throat> when the war intervened, you know, golf was really shut down. And as the economy revived in the early 50s, and one or two railway companies began to build golf courses in the suburbs of Osaka and Tokyo, it sort of got a bit of momentum. And then uh, 1954, I think, the World Cup, uh, or Canada Cup, it was called then, was played in Tokyo and won by uh, the Japanese team of uh, Nakamura and Ono, and that really set the game on fire. So as the population grew uh, with better nutrition and the suburbs began to sort of spread out, golf became something that you know, Japanese men and you know, a lot of women aspired to play. So it it grew and grew, and a, a, a generation of professionals came into being in the late 60s. Uh, Izawa Aoki, uh, Jumbo Ozaki, uh, another sort of two or three. And uh, by the 70s, uh, you know, you had Niklaus Palmer. Dad had been going there since the 50s, all through the 60s. He just liked it there. Um, so you get to a point uh, where it got, it got out of control a bit. The courses that were built in the, uh, the, the great speculative boom of the 1980s, and they were funded with debentures, um, uh, there were too many were built. Uh, they were built too quickly. And in the crash in the 90s, many of them went bankrupt. So another long period of recovery uh, happened. Uh, green fees came down to a reasonable level where now, um, you know, you can play a, a half-decent course uh, with lunch for $60 uh, middle of the week. Um, not that close to Tokyo. It's a little more expensive there. But uh, a lot of golf is played midweek by sort of professional or retired people for that sort of money. And, uh, you know, the maintenance of the courses is all right. But... Um, professionally, the game suffered a long uh, sort of lack of success 
between that generation of Aoki Ozaki and Tommy Nakajima was the other one, uh, and then the coming of Hideki Matsuyama, who uh, finally uh, won the U.S. Masters uh, uh, as the first Japanese uh, player to do so. Uh, some of the Japanese women were far more successful along the way. But uh, professional golf these days, the women's tour is flourishing. There's a, a, a waiting list of sponsors for tournaments. And the men's uh, tour is stuck in the doldrums. Uh, just very boring. Uh, finds it very hard to attract uh, spectators and sponsors. But the women's game is just glorious. Uh, and... For those uh, who feel minded to perhaps come to visit Japan uh, with a set of golf clubs, uh, from time to time I'm I'm available for a few holes. If you should venture down to where I live, down in the south, uh, near the city of Fukuoka. You know, you mentioned uh, Hideki Matsuyama. Of course, he was uh, a key uh, component of the last International President's Cup team. Your dad, of course, captained the President's Cup team on three occasions. In fact, he's the only international captain who can say that they captained a winning International President's Cup team. The international team in 98 included luminaries such as Els, Price, Singh, Norman, Steve Elkington, with backup from Apples, Carlos Franco, Craig Perry, Mariyama and Ozaki from Japan, and the dream team of Nobolo and Greg Turner. A home win at Royal Melbourne must have meant a great deal to him. Yes, it, it was very important. Uh, uh, you should also add that uh, the United States team was led by Jack Nicklaus, uh, and uh, it had some you know, stellar players in it. Uh, and you know, the, that tournament, uh, which I think originally was Dean Beeman's idea, uh, was you know, strongly supported by my father, Gary Player, you know, the others who you know, were never eligible to play Ryder Cup golf. And, you know, they'd always wanted a, a team match uh, against the United States. But uh, it had proved very difficult uh, until 1998 to get even close to the American team. So what happened that year uh, was, as my father would quietly admit, and my mother would... Uh, would certainly you know, say very frankly, it was the wives what won it. It was the wives. Now, wh wh why? Well, <clears throat> what happened uh, behind the scenes uh, was that the wives of the American players uh, were very unhappy that week, and they were uh, in a. They, they had adjoining tents. The, the players had a big tent each. Each team had a tent right next to each other. And my mother knew some of the uh, American wives uh, from the seniors tour or whatever else. And one of them said to her during the tournament, you know, every time we go into our tent, we, we can hear you gals in your tent laughing. You, you gals are having a great time in your tent. Um, my mother said, yeah, yeah, we've got all this mixture of wives from you know, all different countries. Uh, and, you know, we're having a really good time. Glass of champagne, blah, 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 you know. Um, and the American lady said, well, I, I, I wish it was that way in our tent. It's not. Everybody's very unhappy in here. Uh, and uh, it's, it's had an effect on our husbands. 
and uh, it's probably not, uh, um, I don't know whether I really should say why the American wives were so unhappy, but it had to do with the way they felt they were treated by their captain. And uh, <clears throat> whereas on the other side, my mother um, had decided from the beginning of the week that she was going to look after the wives of the international team and really, you know, have a good time that week. And you know, Dad was doing his thing as captain, uh, as Jack was. But uh, my mother said the fact that the, the wives of the international team uh, were just in such a good mood all week, it gave their men the edge they needed to win. And that's pretty much why when they went out there every day in the pairs that Dad had uh, had chosen, um, <clears throat> they were able to overcome their opponents, and they did. So uh, when Ernie Ells came uh, last time, to the end of 2019, um, with his team, uh, there were some fine players there, but as it happened, uh, quite a lot of the players in the international team, uh, their wives were American. <laughs> So there wasn't quite the sort of sense of rivalry that there was back in 1998 when none of the international wives were American, you see what I mean. So I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know that anyone's ever really said this in public, but that's what happened. And I, okay. I was there all week. Uh, I'd just been uh, fired as Minister for Sport and Tourism by the Prime Minister uh, here in a cabinet reshuffle. And my mother was very angry with the Prime Minister, but <clears throat> that didn't distract her from uh, making sure that those gals had a great time. So that's how we won. You mentioned your uh, your time as the Federal Sport and uh, Tourism Minister. I think you were involved in planning for the uh, Sydney Games as well. Yeah. Something I was wondering earlier on, how much more difficult is federal politics to golf club politics? What's more, what's what's easier to negotiate? Well, I, I've never, <laughs> I've never sat on a committee of a golf club. I'm chairman of the Japan Hickory Golf Association. Um, you know, we've had the odd factional stoush, uh, you know, among our Hickory players in Japan. But uh, no, um, you know, national uh, politics uh, in, in a democracy. Uh, you know, with a free media, uh, it's not the case everywhere. Um, no, it's a very competitive business. Every morning, you know, you wake up to uh, very fierce scrutiny of what you do, what you say. You've got to be very careful. Um, and it's you know, very easy to be distracted by, uh, you know, the sort of hullabaloo around you to lose sight of you know, your sort of values and principles. And you know, uh, it inevitably... It's a collegiate or a successful government uh, and opposition. You know, it's a collegiate uh, effort. So you know, you you have to accommodate other people's views that you disagree with. Um, if you, know, you you're going to survive, uh, and uh, you know that that side of it was sometimes uh, very difficult. It's a strange business, very metaphysical. You know, people who work in a profession with, with clients or patients uh, or, or work physically, um, it's almost impossible to explain what it's like 
uh, you know, governing, making decisions according to statutes if you're a minister, um, and then making decisions about where to spend money, uh, or where to raise the money to begin with, how to you know, force people to pay tax, in what way, uh, to what level, and then you know, where to spend it. Um, it's, it's a very complex business, but uh, I'm glad I did it. It was just under seven years. And, um, uh, you know, we used to get up early in the morning in Canberra and go and have nine holes at about ten past six and rush back to Parliament House, have a quick shower, and we'd be there in time for the House of Representatives to start at nine o'clock. Uh, and, and, you know, we'd play with fellows from the opposition as well, <laughs> just go... And have a you know a quick uh, nine holes. Um, yeah, not every morning, uh, but uh, uh, Canberra. Canberra is a capital city, uh, you know, isolated from the rest of Australia. It's it's not like going to the Dale and Dublin or the House of Commons in London. Or, or Washington uh, is such an enormous city. I lived there for a little while. Uh, it's all politics and government. But uh, Canberra is a rather strange place. But Royal Canberra's got uh, 27, uh, you know, really good holes. That's what I remember. Your dad, of course, ran for, for office as well. Yeah, he, at uh, about 1978, I think, uh, one of his good friends was the premier of the state of Victoria, uh, like a Canadian premier, you know, the, the sort of state governor in the American sense. And the party was in, it was the conservative side of politics. The party was in its, I think, 22nd year of government. So it was getting pretty tired. And they wanted to rejuvenate the parliamentary ranks in the state parliament. So uh, this Premier, Lindsay Thompson, um, he asked his friend Peter Thompson to run for a marginal uh, seat. And so Dad felt obliged to do it. And it was... He was busy with golf architecture, but it was before the seniors tour had begun. So his tournament career had finished, and you know, he decided that he should do uh, as as requested. So uh, he put his hand up. He was chosen as the candidate, and uh, he spent oh, two years knocking on doors um, <clears throat> in this sort of inner suburb in Melbourne, not far from where we lived. So uh, when the election came. Uh, by that time, the, the tide had turned very much against that party, the Liberal Party, it's called. And so even though his result in the seat uh, was better than the sort of you know, state average uh, for the party, he, he didn't make it over the line. And, you know, he, he was very annoyed and, and disappointed that he hadn't won the seat. But in retrospect, it was what launched him on the you know, senior golf tour. And uh, so, you know, in the long term, there were no, no real regrets about losing. You know, one place that he didn't seem to have much trouble getting across the line, Andrew, is New Zealand. He would be a nine-time winner of the New Zealand Open over the course of his, of his career. I believe he arrived at Royal Wellington Golf Club for the New Zealand Open in 1976 without a caddy. Enter stage right at 13-year-old Steve Williams. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about this particular hookup and the friendship that developed between Peter and Steve over the years? I don't know. I wish I wish I knew more about that. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to sort of sit down and talk personally about it with Steve Williams. But um, the other person who caddied for him as a 
young man, 12, 13 year old, uh, on one day was Adam Scott. Uh, wow. Yeah, Adam Scott uh, was a young kid. His father was the club pro uh, at a course Dad had designed called Twin Waters in Queensland. And you know, Dad went up there to play around, uh, I think well after the course was open, um, just to see what was going on. And there was Adam um, with his dad. You know, club pro, so Adam caddied, and that led to uh, you know him being fired uh, to pursue a career in golf himself. But New Zealand was very uh, sort of close to Dad's heart, and I spent a lot of time there as a child. We used to go across as a family for a month and just have a holiday there while Dad and Kel and everybody else were playing tournaments, um, and he. He felt an affinity with the country that had something to do with his ancestors emigrating from Scotland uh, to Victoria, because uh, you know he'd sometimes say if they had chosen a different sailing ship in Greenock, you know, the harbour near Glasgow, then we would be Kiwis and not Australians. So there was something about the nature of. New Zealand's origins uh, as, as a settled colony and then an independent country, Scotland being very important in that, that just struck a chord with him. Uh, and uh, so he liked going there to play and being comfortable there, he, he was able to win uh, more often than not, I guess, at least in the New Zealand Open and you know, a few other tournaments. So uh, it remains sort of an important thing in, in our family. You know, New Zealand is its own country, very proud of it. Um, there are those who uh, uh, urged them at the time Australia uh, sought and gained independence to join as part of the Federation. And there's still a, there's still a, a clause in the Australian Constitution that allows for New Zealand to join, but uh, they never will. And they never should. They never should. They're glorious in their own right. You know, despite rumours to the contrary, and we touched on it earlier on. Obviously, your dad was keen to play around the world, but despite rumours to the contrary, the original idea for the world tour was undoubtedly formulated by Peter Thompson, not Greg Norman. There appears to be significant support in Australia for Greg's new limited field events. What do you think Peter would have made of the past twelve to eighteen months in the world of professional golf? Well, I, I'm sure he would have uh, he would have wished that this had come about with a lot less acrimony and uh, I guess you know, 99% of people would fall into that category of thinking it's a great shame that it, it happened uh, with such well you know, uh, personal difficulty and uh, I'm sure that if Tim Fincham were still the commissioner of the tour, that would not have happened. Um, I don't say that to lay personal blame on Mr. Monaghan, but you know, occasionally in these great events, whether it's uh, clashes between you know, nations and so forth, it really does depend on uh, who is leading each side. And you know, the same could be said of the LIV side of it, uh, uh, Rory McIlroy's had his say, and I think in the last 24 hours or so, Tiger Woods likewise. Um, back in July, when the Civil War was really 
had, had really got on foot uh, at the Open Championship. Um, I remember having a conversation in the RNA clubhouse with someone uh, who's very senior, I'd rather not name them, um, and this uh, gentleman lamented that there there's not an informal council of elders in golf um, that could get both sides to sit down. I mean, golf, golf doesn't have a Roman Senate of, you know, older, wiser, you know, men and women with authority who can you know, stop these things uh, getting out of control. I'm not saying it's out of control now. It's, you know, the LIV thing is on foot. You know, they're playing their events. They've got some very significant names. But <clears throat> what puzzles me is when are they going to graduate from this 54-hole format? It, it, it's... It just seems a really strange thing to persevere with something, you know, a shotgun start, team event, 54 holes, um, when, you know, we really want to see 72-hole uh, tournaments. Uh, and if there were to be two rival tours, you know, with very similar formats, well, fine. Um, I mean, the, the history of uh, at least capitalist economies has been a constant battle to stop monopolies forming uh, and you know, suffocating new forms of commerce. And that, that's really what the United States legal history of what they call antitrust law uh, <clears throat> and in the common law in Britain and Australia, <clears throat> we call it you know, uh, anti-monopoly law. I mean, it's been very important since uh, the beer companies, the breweries began to, I think in the late Victorian era, they began to tie pubs. So <clears throat> if you want our beer at a certain price, you have to sell only our beer. And that was the, the beginning of um, what we think of today as sort of consumer rights. This is a terrible violation. And by the way, you walk into a pro shop in Australia, <clears throat> you can't buy a boutique brand of boar or club. I wonder why. Because the big brands provide a discount or a rebate, they call it, to the golf retailers, provided they sell only a number of brands. And, you know, that, that's a, a clear violation of the same anti-monopoly law that for a while <clears throat> was talked about between the USBJ tour and the LIV, and that, that litigation is sort of still on foot. But just going back to my original point, what is required is a council of elders, you know, a, a private settlement of this dispute. And it, it can't be done by some lawyers or attorneys or, you know, whatever. It's, it's got to be done by people who've played the game at a senior level. But it doesn't look as though that's going to happen. And, you know, the, the bad blood between Greg Norman and Tiger Woods has been on foot for a long time. And uh, when Tiger Woods was in, you know, some you know, considerable distress uh, after some of the early scandals had broken, uh, I understand that somebody called Greg Norman and suggested, you know, would, would you uh, invite Tiger over for a beer and try and cheer him up? And this may be... Uh, anecdotal nonsense but uh, the reply was well why would i bother to do that he's never picked up the phone and called me so <clears throat> um 
you know, here you have bad blood between certain individuals. You have a lack of Roman senators that can call everyone in and try and sort out a, a modus vivendi. Um, but look, basically, I think the average golf uh, fan in Australia wants to see more golf uh, with better players uh, more often. It's quite simple. Just as we want to go to a pub and be able to choose from four or five different beers, not just one. That seems to me where it stands now. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Andrew, all of, all of my guests are asked the same final two questions. To that end, our second last question today relates to what courses are currently on your bucket list mm -hmm. and why do you have them there? Well, um, if that includes courses that I have played before. Absolutely. You can interpret it however you wish. Well, if, if someone said to me, tomorrow you go to the airport in Melbourne, fly somewhere with your favourite set of hickory clubs, um, <clears throat> and what airport would you, where would you land? And my answer would be Inverness. I'd get a car and I'd drive straight to Bora. Uh, the weather's probably a little grim this time of year, but that course at Brora, uh, yeah, it was one of Dad's favourites, but I, I love it myself, personally. Uh, the next place I, I would go, um, I'd go to Glasgow and I'd get that uh, twin propeller plane and uh, I would land at Isla and I'd go to the Macri Hotel I'd order myself a dram uh, of the best single malt, uh, well, any single malt, and I'd go out and I'd play Macri. I, 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 I like those courses very much. That's, that, that, that's if I go to the airport. But if you say to me, well, go outside into the street, get in your car, put the hickories in the back and, you know, hit the highway. Well, um, I'd drive straight to the first tee of the west course of Royal Melbourne and tea off as I usually do there. I love that course. And uh, when I'd finished there, I'd head into country Victoria and I'd find a course, there's two or three in mind, where the kangaroos sit around the tees as you hit. And nothing terribly special about the turf or the architecture, but it's, it's country Victoria. And uh, there's something about the sound of the birds that are down here and the smell of the air, the eucalyptus and that. But, uh, so I, I was born and grew up in the state of Victoria here in Australia. I may live in Japan, but uh, it's, it's this part of the earth uh, where I feel best, if it's not in Scotland. So that's my answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Our final question today, Andrew, relates to two reading recommendations for golf books that might augment any golfer's library. Well, uh, I've just, well, a, a month or two ago, I finished Stephen Proctor's uh, book, The Long Golden Afternoon, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. It made such a difference to the way I understand the game. Not, not hitting the ball, but the game. Uh, the history of the rivalry between England and Scotland, and the individual players uh, before the great triumvirate's uh, age and, and towards the end of it, uh, uh, Hilton Ball, others. Um, it's a magnificent work. 
and I, I look forward to meeting Stephen Proctor one day and buying him a dram to thank him uh, for what he's done. It's a, it's a re- remarkable book. Yeah. He's doing a great service to uh, all us golfers that like reading a bit of history. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I hope he's included in uh, the uh, King's Birthday Honours next year. Although I'm not sure whether, uh, as a citizen of the United States, he qualifies. I, I hope so. He probably doesn't qualify, but I think that would take. He would be tickled pink to hear that. <laughs> uh, indeed, um, good on him. Uh, the second one was the book uh, you mentioned, uh, which a journalist called Steve Perkins sat down with my father and uh, recorded him uh, talking about golf. It's its original title, I think, was A Life in Golf. Um, and as you point out, um, it's its little, you wouldn't call them even essays, they're little bite-sized sort of comments, uh, about a page each and a, a short page. Uh, but there's an immense amount of joy in, in uh, just reading what he had to say about all sorts of aspects of the game. Um, it, it's it, it, a, a very wide spectrum of subjects about golf were covered in what is a relatively small book. Uh, and you know, once a year I'll pick it up and read it uh, again, just for the sheer thrill of it. The fact that I was his son uh, aside, it, it's, it's a great read. No, I think it, it encapsulates uh, uh, Peter's perspective on the game. And, and the simplicity of that perspective, you know, putting your attention where it's worthwhile as opposed to on stuff that is, is not worthwhile for the, the next shot kind of thing. So very simple, but really well worth buying and having a read of and dipping in and out. It's, it's, a, it's a, great, uh, a great read. Listen, Andrew, before I let you go, you might just share with listeners how they might be able to follow you on the socials or read your blog. Well, I, I don't write much uh, online. Um but uh, I have a Twitter account. I think it's uh, at News from Kyushu. Um, the island of Kyushu is where I live, K-Y-U-S-H-U. Um, uh, I've got a manuscript underway now, uh, about half done. I've finally uh, um, taken the plunge and decided to write something about golf. And if... Uh, if all goes well, uh, it, should, it might be published uh, in the second half of next year. So un- until then, um, I think I'll have to remain sort of almost silent. But uh, the Golf Society of Australia uh, has just published its uh, quarterly newsletter called The Long Game. And uh, I've written the story of the ashes, uh, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, uh, in the in in the current edition, which was published yesterday, so um, I'll try and send you a PDF copy of it, uh, so you Shane can perhaps put a link to it on your website or whatever. Um, but if uh, well, I'd be flattered if people would read that. Andrew Thompson, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Many thanks for your time and your insight. Sight, shall I say? Enjoy the remainder of your Melbourne summer and indeed the Australian Open this week. Go easy. Many thanks, Shane. See you in Ireland. Many thanks for tuning in. 
As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.